Hi Subterraneous listeners. I hope you're enjoying Season 4 so far. It's been a delight to work on, as ever. This episode is the first of a two-part series, since it ended up stretching a lot longer than I'd first expected. I think you're really going to enjoy it, and it's a little different to normal, so I'm looking forward to seeing how you'll react to it. As always, if you want to support the show, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash subterpod, where I'm currently doing a series about the music of Subterraneans for £5 and over subscribers. Now, on with the show. To qualify as a black cab driver in London, you have to take an exam known as the Knowledge. First introduced in 1865, it requires cabbies learn all the roads, streets and carriageways within a six mile radius of Charing Cross. That means memorising thousands of landmarks and the most efficient routes between them, as well as the ability to quickly switch to a different way if the road is blocked or if there's too much traffic. Of course, The advent of GPS and the introduction of phone-based taxi apps has rendered a lot of this knowledge, sadly, kind of obsolete. As is the case in many similar cities, there's an ongoing power struggle between black cabbies who have spent years learning the knowledge before they can get licensed, and the massive influx of venture capital-backed apps all racing each other to the bottom in terms of workers' rights in order to starve out the competition. It seems tragically clear that the knowledge is, before too long, going to become an antiquated test, long since overtaken by satellites and mapping software. That said, there are whole areas of the city which GPS can't follow, which cut the line between the flat map of the city and the messy reality of its peaks and valleys. Even if the knowledge itself eventually disappears, being able to navigate against the tide of the city has its perks, especially if you're ready to break a few rules while you do it. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. exploration videos are immensely popular on YouTube and other streaming sites. They're part of the inspiration for this show, although I have to be honest, I spend far more time watching the clickbaity videos of little tearaways breaking onto rooftops and running from the cops than the slow, careful, respectful explorations you can find if you dig into the hobby seriously. The simple truth is there's something way more compelling to me about the former than the latter. Watching a gaggle of teenagers sprint across the precarious glass roof of a shopping mall while security tries to catch them fills me with vicarious glee. Plus, they tend to be better edited. It's what led me to my friendship with Kay. I've mentioned her previously on the show. She's the friend who helped me break into the houses on Billionaire's Row and who helped me track the signal at Blackfriars. We first met because I'd seen a couple of her urban exploration videos on YouTube and realised she was a friend of a friend, so we started talking. She took me on a few excursions around the city with her crew and we shared a joint on the roof of Centre Point on a pleasant summer's evening not too long after. She'd been doing this sort of thing since she was a teenager, having fallen into it through free-running events and the hack space scene which blew up in East London in the late 2000s. 
there's a whole underground world of explorers and adventurers with their own language and online spaces, comparing their achievements and speaking in coded lingo which I can barely get my head around. It's like they've all taken a very specific version of the knowledge, but for the rooftops and service entrances of the city. They're always challenging themselves with new routes, uh, trying to find the most efficient way from, say, Piccadilly Circus to Covent Garden without touching the street, over the rooftops of Chinatown or down through the service passages beneath Leicester Square. Of course, there's another side to this, beyond just the recreational. The UK has one of the most comprehensive surveillance states in the world, with hundreds of thousands of CCTV cameras covering almost every inch of the city. A significant proportion of these cameras are linked up to the police facial recognition database, and although public mask wearing has been helpful in slowing this erosion of privacy, there are plenty of other ways to identify and track a person of interest as they travel through the metropolis. I could talk about evading this state security apparatus in the soft, liberal way, gesture vaguely towards civil rights and anonymity, but I think it's better to be honest with ourselves here. A lot of people want to avoid the cameras because they have crimes to commit, and I think that's fine. Drug dealing, shoplifting, theft and larceny are part of the fabric of any reputable conurbation, and all the ways that we could prevent them, legalising drugs, providing a decent social safety net, reducing the obscene wealth inequality in this country, have been discarded out of hand in favour of police and prisons, which are both wildly ineffective and staggeringly cruel. Don't get me wrong, I don't think everyone who's out there robbing, stealing and dealing is automatically a comrade, but I certainly see more of myself in them than I do in the vultures who control the levers of power. Kay would agree with me on that. She's an outcast, a survivor, a person in between, and damn proud of it. That's what led her, eventually, to the Returners. The Returners are a liberation group. Well, sort of. They definitely liberate a lot of items from their current owners. They started out as a couple of art students in the 90s southeast London who, sick of reading about all the colonial treasures locked away in the vaults of British collectors, decided to steal a couple of them back. Their first move was to sloppily break into the house of a famous Kensington art dealer, hold him up at gunpoint, a fake gun it should be noted, but nonetheless, and take one of the Benin bronzes from his collection. The Benin bronzes are a set of over a thousand cast bronze plaques and sculptures that were looted by the British Empire from 1897 onwards. They were created between the 13th and the 16th century in the Kingdom of Benin, in what is now Nigeria, and they represent a wide array of figures and scenes from lowly soldiers and musicians right up to the royal family. The majority of them are now in museum collections around Europe, and very few have been returned to Nigeria where they rightly belong. The return of these bronzes has long been a rallying point for post-colonial justice groups who see them, correctly, as a symbol of continued British colonialism. The closest analogy I can think of would be if Nigeria had invaded Britain, stolen the crown jewels, and then held them for 120 years. Except even that doesn't quite work because the crown jewels are, themselves, mostly made of stolen gemstones and precious materials extracted from the victims of British colonialism. I'm getting a little off track here. 
After snatching up the collector's stolen artwork, the returners then left through the front door and disappeared into their hideout slash council flat in South London, where they were almost immediately apprehended by police. They served a total of five years each at Her Majesty's pleasure, although the bronze itself had already made its way to a museum in Nigeria by first-class post, where it remains to this day. Of course, it's not pure post-colonial justice which drives the group. While on that first heist, one of them got a little overexcited and snatched up the contents of the safe in the process, which was actually what led to them getting nicked. The bills were tracked to the off-license near their flat, where they'd splashed out on a fancy bottle of wine, 15 quid, and a packet of rolling tobacco. Still, being put behind bars turned out to be the best possible thing for the pair, since they met a handful of other heist-minded individuals and resolved to try again as soon as they were released. And this time, they had the expertise on board to avoid getting caught. Since then, they've been responsible for around half a dozen burglaries around the country. They choose their targets much more carefully now, and with a little more rational self-interest. Sure, the focus of the job is always on some artifact or rare piece of art, usually rotting unceremoniously in a private collection, but they won't move ahead unless they can also lift enough cash to disappear for a while afterwards. They're somewhere in between Carmen San Diego and Ocean's Eleven, a rotating group of professionals with the track record and the expertise needed to get the job done. They've also got a little more audacious over the years. The first couple of jobs they pulled after being released were low-key affairs, more Le Circle Rouge than the Italian job, all clandestine nighttime break-ins and stealthy extractions. They were still a little gun-shy after their time inside, which is quite understandable. The trouble with that approach, though, is that part of the appeal of taking jobs like this, less profitable than standard heists but much riskier, is the star factor, the propaganda victory. If the collector can just quietly claim it on their insurance and pretend nothing ever happened, it just doesn't feel as sweet, you know? As a result, their work is self-consciously theatrical, visible, and often takes place in full view of the public. They've hit opening galas of famous museums, disappeared solid granite statues from plinths in public squares, blown the doors off safe rooms while high society soirees take place nearby. They often send people undercover into these events without necessarily telling them what's going to happen, and get them to film the reaction from the inside, adding another level of performance to the whole occasion. Footage of a wealthy businessman unveiling what he believed was going to be a priceless piece of pre-colonial Namibian sculpture went viral after it was revealed to have been replaced with a ham sandwich and a note reading, better luck next time. That said, the job Kay got involved with was, by some margin, their boldest job yet. The art collector from whom the returners took their first score had gotten old and bitter in the 20 years since. His name was Mansell Wheeler, and he was actually affiliated with the Guild of Subterraneans through a familial connection. He was the nephew of Russell Wheeler, the former livery master who supplemented his fortunes by building the first super basements and survival shelters for the super rich, as I spoke about back in season one. Since he lost his Benin bronze, 
he'd become intensely paranoid about his collection. He'd followed the antics of the Returners ever since, and regularly appeared on TV after a major heist, calling for the arrest of the founding members, even though they'd become the masters of obtaining rock-solid alibis for any future heist made in their name. They only worked through proxies from 2005 onwards and tried to keep a low profile, working more as fixers than as active participants. Mansell, meanwhile, had made use of his vast inherited wealth to double down on his dragon-like hoard of stolen art. He even kept it in a cave underground, far away from the filthy gaze of the public, a mixture of priceless relics, stolen heritage, and the occasional contemporary piece retained as a speculative investment vehicle. He'd sometimes sell off items in the latter category to buy more of the former too, ensuring his fortune only ever grew. He was, it has to be said, a canny investor, although money attracts money. It's much easier for a millionaire to become a billionaire than for schmucks like us to become millionaires in the first place. The vault was buried beneath the basement of the Shard, the skyscraper which now looms solemnly over London Bridge Station. Unlike with a normal building, they prepared and poured the concrete for the first floor as a solid block before laying the heavy foundation which would later support the 87-storey tower. This was mostly done to save time and money on construction, since it allowed them to start building up before they'd finished digging down. This same drive for cost savings also led to them selling space in a handful of structurally insignificant pockets within the foundation, which would normally be left empty or used for maintenance access. Mansell bought one of these right at the very bottom of the foundation and had it set up as a vault for his collection. The vault has only one entrance and exit, five stories underground through a series of high security access corridors and tightly guarded safe rooms right at the very base of the tower. To get in, you have to pass through the security center for the entire building and it's a semi-open secret that there's also a police counter-terrorism task force station in there too, from which armed officers can be dispatched in minutes to almost anywhere in London. Mansell has his own skeleton security crew who watch the vault itself, all trusted men he knows personally. It's a retirement job for some of the former subterraneans in fact, who spend most of their time playing cards and chain-smoking cigarettes in the maintenance room with a disabled smoke alarm pretending they're in a 60s Rat Pack movie. The whole basement is concrete framed, including the area underneath Mansell's vault. On top of that, the vault is actually suspended off the basement floor by a couple of freestanding feet, which was done to shield against movement from passing trains that could damage the artworks, and also as an additional security measure. Highly sensitive vibration tracking can sense any time there's a person anywhere in the vicinity of the vault, down to a microscopic level, preventing unexpected access without the need to keep it lit for CCTV, potentially harming the display. Each of the pieces is also fitted, in a non-destructive way, with an unobtrusive GPS tracking device, normally threaded through a part of it like a really expensive safety tag on a supermarket liquor bowl. As a final safety measure, the vault's containment chamber was designed to flood with a fast-drying flame-retardant foam in the event of a fire, completely sealing it off for later recovery. So, to recap, five stories underground, encased in concrete, flanked by armed police, building guards and private security, 
a suspended vault filled with GPS-tagged artifacts, protected with delicate vibration-sensing equipment, and a single, near-impossible-to-reach entrance, which can itself be completely sealed off with impenetrable, quick-dry chemical foam in under a minute. Seems impossible, right? There were dozens of priceless heritage pieces in this vault, the centrepiece of which is a mass stone taken from Ireland in the 17th century. This might not sound like much, and it's certainly not worth much as an investment, but it's Mansell's most prized possession, since his having it is an expression of pure spite. The mass stones were used by persecuted Catholic priests during the British occupation of Ireland, and he absolutely detests the Irish. He's held onto the stone for years, despite several very generous offers to buy it from museums and collectors of Irish heritage, precisely because, and I quote here, it pisses off those green bastards to know an Englishman's got their dumb rock. He wasn't wrong. Kay's first contact with the returners was through a fellow urban explorer who went by Irish Pete, an ironic name for several reasons, since he spoke with the flawless plummy accent of an RAF fighter from the 1940s, and because he spent most of his time hanging out with other Irish guys, so why would he need the nickname Irish? Pete was actually a full-blooded Irishman who'd been raised in a fiercely Republican family, and his father had some real long-term goals for his son to infiltrate the British state. This meant he'd trained him since birth to blend in perfectly in English high society. Since the Good Friday Agreement and the reduction in hostilities, however, Pete had mostly used this for pranks, but his impeccable manners and his ability to effortlessly ingratiate himself in any social situation had led him into confidence tricks to work, which led to a couple of years in prison, which led him, eventually, to the returners. Irish Pete wanted that mass rock back real bad. He's descended from the family of the priest who used to give illicit sermons near it, on a wooden glade at the top of a small hill a few miles outside of Limerick. It was stolen in the 1800s by a group of unionists who literally sawed the cap off the hill to take it away, leaving behind a stump where once it stood. This scar on the landscape has remained as a stark reminder of what was taken ever since. The rock itself is about 200 pounds, give or take, and not actually that huge, but there are markings on it which clearly identify it as an item once used as part of a Catholic mass. There's also, insultingly, a hole drilled clean through it, which was used at one point to affix it to a wagon, which was toured around to brag about what they did. It's now been used to affix the GPS tracker, which Mansell has strapped to all of his prizes. The mass rock was a perfect score for them, because not only was it a historically significant artifact, and not only would it irritate Mansell to lose it, but it was also the subject of several high-profile court cases over rightful ownership. This meant that if it got lost and returned to a different, more ethical claimant, it would be very difficult indeed for Mansell to definitively assert his right to get it back. It was stolen in both the moral and the legal sense, so if they could get away with it, the police would likely sack the whole thing off as a civil matter and refuse to investigate any further. Oh, also, uh, one more thing. The vault had a ton of cash in it. 
like a literal ton of cash. Mansell was involved in money laundering, as basically all high-end art dealers are, and the returners knew they'd be able to fill their boots several times over without him being able to do shit about it, legally speaking. It was almost too good. Irish Pete was the leader on this job, since it was closest to his heart, but there are a few others involved as well. Naturally, the two original returners were acting as fixers, although they were out the country at the time, hands completely off to keep up their own alibi. Draco was the hacker, who provided most of the intel about the building, and who spent most of their time angrily clarifying that they were going by Draco long before all that Harry Potter shit started. There was Evgeny, Owen, and Eugenio, a trio of tough lads who fell together because they were all named Eugene but in different languages, and Sally, a late 50s metalhead whose ability to perfectly imitate voices is so uncanny that she'd had a long career as a phone scammer before turning her talents to more ethical work. Kay's job was extraction, since she knew all the routes in and out of the city. I'll come back to her role at the end. It all started with a phone call. episode of Subterraneans, The Heist. How six dropouts pulled off the biggest robbery in the city's history. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter, or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes content from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subdepod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex. I'm good, I'm hot, I'm fresh, I'm fly. Thanks for listening.